1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, Amelia Gentleman is exposing the hostile environment in her new book, The Windrush Betrayal. Amelia Gentleman is a reporter for The Guardian. She was named Journalist of the Year at the 2019 British Journalism Awards and won the 2018 Paul Foote Journalism Award for her reportage on the Windrush scandal. She has also won the Orwell Prize and Feature Writer of the Year at the British Press Awards. Previously, she was Delhi Correspondent for the International Herald Tribune and Paris and Moscow Correspondent for The Guardian. And Amelia is the author of The Windrush Betrayal, Exposing the Hostile Environment, which we're going to be talking about today. Amelia, welcome to Little Atoms.
2: Hello, thanks for having me. I'm really pleased to be here.
1: So can you tell me when you first became aware of this story?
2: I was emailed um, by a charity in Wolverhampton in late October 2017. They sent me an email saying that they were really worried about one of their clients, a woman called Paulette Wilson, who had arrived in Britain um, from Jamaica at the age of, uh, I think, 11, and who'd lived here ever since. So she'd arrived in about 1968, had lived all of her life in Britain, had never returned to Jamaica. And at the age of uh, 60, she had been told by the Home Office that she was living here illegally. Uh, she tried to explain to the Home Office that they'd made a terrible mistake, but Somehow she hadn't managed to and no one had listened to her. So she was um, taken to Yarlswood Immigration Detention Centre. And that's when the charity um, emailed me. They they got in touch because they were aware that she was being booked onto a flight back to Jamaica, a country that she hadn't visited in half a century and where she had um, no close relatives. So... I remember getting the email because the um, subject heading was quite kind of stark and it said um, a a woman is is about to be deported after 50 years in the UK. And I get lots of emails at at work, um, but there was something so disturbing about about this one that I knew um, that it was something worth writing about
1: we're going to come back to to paulette's story because you you tell her story in in great detail in the book and we'll use her as an example as you do mm-hmm. but let's take a step back first of all and i want to talk about what do we mean when we talk about hostile environment because it it's become something of a of a catchphrase you know you'll hear it on the news hostile environment hostile environment but what is it actually what did it involve
2: well, I'm actually, I'm really glad that it's become a catchphrase because when, um, when I began to look at this in 2017, it wasn't something that, um, most people were able to understand or knew a lot about unless you were an immigration solicitor or you worked, um, in the sector or unless you've been, um, caught up in it, you, you were quite likely not really to know what it meant. So, There's been a bit of um, kind of to and fro between the Conservative Party and the Labour Party about who actually coined the phrase Um, when Theresa May and Amber Rudd were in the heat of um, the storm over this issue. um, They tried to point out that actually Labour had created um, or had been the first political party to come up with this phrase. But that aside, it really became a um, concerted policy in about 2012, when Theresa May was Home Secretary. um, She gave an interview, and and in it she said that she wanted to create a really hostile environment in Britain for illegal immigration. And just to remind um, you of the context, that was two years after David Cameron had come to power in the coalition, and one of David Cameron's commitments was to get net migration down to the tens of thousands. It was a very uh, difficult to achieve commitment. And it was by 2012, it was becoming quite embarrassing because every quarter, the migration statistics are released and newspapers or or media outlets were were constantly reminding uh, the government that they were nowhere near to meeting this very... Unattainable, it seemed, um, target. So, um, in 2012, um, Theresa May and David Cameron and a number of ministerial colleagues put their heads together to try and work out what strategies they could introduce to begin to to tackle this this issue. Um, and one of the things that they came up with was the idea of the hostile environment. The kind of motivation for this was twofold. It was partly, I suppose, to counter for the fact that the Home Office was beginning to see the effects of austerity, of cuts to the headcount. There was this understanding that it was very hard to kind of enforce migration checks at a time when you were cutting back on your employees. So the the kind of the ingenious solution was to outsource um, the functions of the Home Office to non-Home Office officials and also to um, members of the public. So the hostile environment really introduced a requirement that people would be asked for um, documentary proof that they were living in the UK legally at many, many more everyday junctures. So not just at the border, not just at the airports or the the ports, but when somebody wants to rent a house, the um, landlord has to check whether they're living in the UK legally and faces a much stiffer fine as a result of this legislation. When someone wants a new job, um, the employer has to check. And again, the fines were radically increased under this legislation um, to £20,000 to the employer if they hired someone illegally. But not just those, also accessing medical care with the NHS, trying to open a bank account, trying to get a driving licence, trying to get a mobile phone contract. All across the board, it became much, much more difficult as a result of these hostile environment policies.
1: And people may remember the vans as well, where they were driving around with vans with "go home" type slogans. Up.
2: Yeah, I think that was in um, 2013. Again, under um, Theresa May's Home Office, there was this new desire to make people feel very uncomfortable if they were uncertain about their immigration status, and one of those was to send um, these vans around areas of high migration explaining to people that they needed to go home or face arrest.
1: And so what does this mean on on the ground, not the Home Office, not anyone in the government, but somebody who's just getting up and going out to their clerical job at the Immigration Service? You know, how does this change the, I mean, I guess, targets and things and quotas and that are brought in, are they?
2: So um, around this time, there were targets for removals, targets for deportations. And this became very controversial because quite whether or not they were actually known as targets or goals or aspirations um, became really a, a, a kind of huge political debate. But in a in a sense it was kind of academic because targets or, or goals the understanding had trickled down to regional offices that there was a requirement for a certain number of people to be removed every week of the year and officials knew that they had to work to that target and the culture within the Home Office really changed.
1: Let's just take a step back again and I want to have a brief history of the... uh you know the history of migration to the uk from the caribbean and and this has become known as the as the windrush scandal the book's called the windrush betrayal but actually obviously you know this affects a lot more people than the people that came over on the on the empire windrush and actually probably yeah. slightly later than those people
2: yeah in fact it is kind of a misnomer because we're, we're not talking about the 500 or so people who came from the caribbean on that ship in in june 1948 We're talking about a younger generation of people who arrived as children in the 1950s and 1960s, not just from the Caribbean, but from any Commonwealth country, any former colony of of the UK. So what happened in, in 1948 was that there was a very radical piece of legislation passed which allowed anyone who was a British subject living in a Commonwealth country was given permission to travel freely to the UK. So the key point is that all of these people arriving in the 1950s and 1960s, and right up until 1973, when the law was changed and tightened, had absolutely the right to live here, arrived here legally. The Home Office didn't keep a list of people who came in. And the documentation given to people who arrived at this time was very disparate. Some people had stamps in their passport. Some people had a letter. The key thing was that actually, because we haven't historically particularly had a papers-please culture, we don't have ID cards, until recently, um, it hasn't really been necessary to supply clear documentary evidence that you're living here legally the assumption has broadly been that you you probably are until the hostile environment policies were introduced and it became much more um, of a daily requirement to um, prove that you are living here legally.
1: And the hostile environment is obviously, you know, a a contemporary thing, but actually there's also another piece of legislation um, that is vitally important here, which is in uh, 1971 Immigration Act. What was that one? Exactly.
2: So the 1971 Immigration Act really undid what this very kind of generous bit of legislation in 1948. And so amid growing concern about the scale of um, immigration to the UK, and and remember this is just three years after Enoch Powell's um, Rivers of Blood speech, the entry requirements were tightened up and it was no longer possible for people to travel freely uh, from from the Commonwealth and and settle in the UK. So 1973 became this really key um, date in, in this predicament because a lot of the people who found themselves in 2014, 2015, suddenly struggling to persuade the Home Office that they were living here legally and had been living here legally for a lifetime, they were suddenly asked to um, provide documentary evidence that they had indeed lived here for every year since 1973, which is when the Act um, came into force. And, of course, um, people found it incredibly difficult because, I mean, I I know I would struggle to find um, documentary evidence that I've lived here all that time most people of course you know unless they've got a a kind of obsessive desire to hoard documents simply don't have that sort of um archive of their life in in paper form
1: no i know i certainly don't (laughs) um let's go back to paulette wilson then tell us something about her i guess her immigration history um when did she arrive in this country
2: so I mean, so the, the really interesting thing for me about reporting this issue and then um, writing a book about it was, on on the one hand, it's a, a kind of incredibly technical bit of um, home office legislation and immigration policy, and in a way so technical that it kind of makes your head spin. And on the other hand, it was um, reporting about people's lives in real detail and obviously the kind of gateway to reporting about it was that there was this problem but in in passing um it was so fascinating to to be able to write about the kind of the wave of migration that had come in the 1950s and 60s and the lives that people had had here um in the decades that followed so paulette wilson was the first person i spoke to about this She had been sent by her very young mother from Jamaica to join her grandparents who lived outside Birmingham. Her grandmother was working as a midwife um, in the NHS and she arrived in 1968. She had quite a difficult childhood, but she went to primary school, went to secondary school, brought up a daughter here, helped to bring up a granddaughter she worked as a cook for a long time. Um, she worked for some some time in the um, House of Commons, serving the MPs who were simultaneously devising this um, legislation. And by the time I met her, she wasn't working, um, partly because of the difficulties um, she was having, proving she was here legally. And she also um, was having difficulty with her housing, Her daughter had had to find her somewhere to live, Um, but she was still, you know, getting on with life. She volunteered at a local um, food bank. So she was kind of somebody who was both under this enormous um, threat from from the home office. By the time I met her she had been released from um, immigration detention and she'd been able to come home but she was still being told by the home office that she remained liable to detention and liable to deportation
3: If you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers
1: to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Amelia Gentleman, and we're talking about her book, The Windrush Betrayal, Exposing the Hostile Environment. And Amelia, I guess I want to talk in, in some detail. Could you tell us about how you went about investigating this whole story? Once you got into it, once you had heard the story of Paulette, um, how you went about investigating the story that ended up in this book?
2: It was really difficult. And one of the reasons I wanted to write this book, um, it was to partly, of course, to, to show the scale of what went wrong and, and to remind people of the real damage done to so many people, but also to lift lift the curtain back a little bit and, and show what it's like to work inside the Guardian newsroom and show how kind of frustrating and challenging doing um, this kind of investigation was because in in kind of retrospect, it looks very linear and, and simple and, and obvious that what was causing the problem and that there were lots of people affected. But actually, it wasn't at all clear. When we published the article about the difficulties Paulette Wilson was having, I began to get um, contacts um, from other people from lawyers, from other people who knew friends and family members who were uh, similarly affected. But to begin with, um, it was hard to persuade people that um, they should talk about it to a newspaper. I mean, you're talking about being um, classified as an immigration offender is is a big deal. You you know, it's it's embarrassing. A lot of the people I spoke to hadn't even told their children um, that they were facing these difficulties. So I guess I just um, wanted to go on trying to write about it because it seemed um, gradually clear that the Home Office hadn't just made a series of of terrible mistakes, but but that there was something um, systemic going wrong.
1: Yeah, this is where I was going to go next. So at what point do you, because obviously, you know, people are always having immigration problems, but at what point does it become apparent to you that this is a systemic thing, that there is a, there's a plan?
2: Well, um, I'm not sure about the word plan because, um, I mean, the hostile environment absolutely was a plan. I think um, the impact it had on this group of people may have caught the Home Office by surprise, although, to be honest, it shouldn't have done because um, they had a number of fairly clear warnings. So anyway, it, it, um, the, the next person I spoke to was a, a man called Anthony Bryan, who'd been detained for five weeks in immigration detention, who was also being booked on a on a flight back um, to Jamaica and had only managed to avoid being flown back um, the week that I met him because his lawyer had intervened. And again, he'd been here for 50 years, hadn't travelled back to Jamaica, hadn't committed any offence. So it seemed crazy that the Home Office was um, paying for for him to be in detention for five weeks. It just felt like such a kind of disproportionate um, response to this entirely um, law-abiding um, painter, decorator from, from London. And he told me that he knew a number of other people who were facing similar problems. So at that point, I realized that if, if one person was aware of other people from his primary school, from his friendship group, who'd also been designated wrongly as illegal immigrants, then there must be something going wrong, um, on, a, on a bigger scale. But it wasn't. It wasn't until the, the next year, until the early spring, when um, an Oxford um, academic working for the Migration Observatory told me that they that she had done some statistical analysis of so five hundred thousand or so people arrived during the, that period from Commonwealth countries, of whom she estimated that something like fifty eight thousand had never naturalised in the UK. So that became the kind of upper limit of possible people who could be affected. I think we know now that it's in in the thousands, um, but the full scale of the, the number of people affected we still remains a bit of a mystery.
1: You tell many stories of, of people affected in the book, people who were denied life-saving national health treatment, for instance, and, you know, various stories of you know people being you know finding themselves stuck in countries that they've you know they've, they've never spent any significant time in and indeed people died before they could see any any kind of justice
2: uh yeah the stories are really really disturbing so some people were made homeless some people lost their jobs um i spoke to an London ambulance driver who got the sack, a special needs teacher who got the sack. Then other people, as you say, didn't get cancer treatment. Um, And one woman, I think perhaps the most upsetting story um, I I came across was um, a woman who'd arrived in Britain at the age of four who um, was over 55 years later, so alarmed by the barrage of um, communications that she was getting from the Home Office telling her that she was here illegally, that she eventually agreed to something that's called um, a voluntary return. Although it it wasn't really that voluntary. And she went back to Grenada, a a country that she hadn't um, lived in since she was four. And she was stuck there for eighteen months until until this whole issue broke in in the became a kind of political issue here in Britain.
1: Now we know what some of the fallout of this was. Amber Rudd, for one, lost her job. Mm. But what significantly changed? You know, we're about to to embark on a period of time where, you know, thousands and thousands of EU citizens are gonna have to go through this process. 3.4 million. Yeah. yeah. Um, are we in any way, shape or form ready for that?
2: Well, I mean, I'm torn because I really want this this whole issue to, to have a kind of happy ending. And in some ways it does. And in some ways I really hope that I've written a book that is kind of upbeat and, and positive because – I feel, you know, as a journalist, the industry, um, has had a lot of, um, bad press, uh, o- over recent years. You know, we're very much, um, sensitive to accusations of, of fake news. And, and also we're kind of in a, particularly as, as print, um, journalists in an industry that's very, uh, facing very uncertain times. So I suppose I, I look at this and feel, very optimistic about the power of journalism to bring about constructive change and and the change that we saw that has been positive as as a result of finally all of the articles in the Guardian forcing the government to pay belatedly attention. The positive things that have happened are that 6,000 people who didn't have documents proving that they were here legally have now got those documents and that's An enormous relief for them and for their families to know that they are no longer on the home office's enforcement lists. The the government has flown a number of people home from countries where they were exiled. People have got their jobs back and and their homes back. And um, the government has promised reform and has promised a very generous, um, in theory, compensation scheme that could pay out over 200 million or up to 500 million pounds so all of that I I really want to feel positive about but your question is a good one because although we've had the apologies and the promises of reform from Theresa May from Amber Rudd from Sajid Javid Those commitments haven't yet um, materialised into action. The legislation that underpins the hostile environment um, remains in in force. Um, And the compensation that was promised hasn't yet been paid, um, although the Home Office says it's beginning to pay it. I I have yet to to talk to anybody who's received it. So I do think as we begin this, this process of accepting applications from the 3.4 million EU nationals who also have to regularise their status here but it's a kind of a, an alarming prospect.
1: As you mentioned a uh, investigative journalist and obviously this is not the the first big story you've worked on but I wonder if you know as well you know without going into too much detail you perhaps have more insight than most into the uh into the workings of the of the government, did this change how you see the politicians who you run the? You know, did, it, did this change how you see the workings of the government?
2: Um, I think that I felt really um, enraged by what was happening to the people affected, and occasionally when when I was interviewing people, I felt that my kind of absolute um sense of of outrage was somehow somehow not shared by them and i remember talking to a couple of people about this and and there was this um sense i suppose that i've always experienced the state as something that is there on my side and something that i expect to operate and and to work and a lot of the people who were affected by this scandal were people who derived in Britain in the 1950s and 60s, received a very unwelcome, um, greeting, lived through, um, an era of real intense, uh, racism, have faced institutionalized racism kind of throughout their lives and perhaps expected a little bit, um, less of the state. So were, uh, I suppose less surprised by what what had happened to them um, and that was a real um, sobering learning um, experience I suppose for me to see that um, to, to, to see my expectations but were not um, shared by everyone.
1: So I've been talking to Amelia Gentleman about her book, The Windrush Betrayal, Exposing the Hostile Environment, which is out now in the UK from Faber and has just recently been long-listed for the Bailey Gifford Prize. Um, Amelia, thank you so much for telling me about it.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by ACAST. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.